0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday, March the 8th, 2023. It is currently 4.57 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas, where I am currently absolutely perplexed, and confused. Now, now we're supposed to be talking about a devotional that was published online. There's a podcast that goes with the devotional that is confusing a lot of people, and I've been receiving emails in regards to the devotional. But we cannot get to that confusing devotional because something just happened that I am absolutely perplexed And confused by, and maybe it's just me. Maybe, maybe you completely think differently about this, but let let me explain. First, let me read a scripture, all right? The, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart a powerful verse that tells us about the power of God's word, how it's able to kind of open us up and really show us who we are, how we think, how we feel, and what our motivations really are. The the Bible, you know, is is that instrument that can do basically open heart surgery and show us the real us. And we need to be confronted with the real us over and over and over. So it's a powerful verse. But let me ask you a question. If you had a church... If you were in charge of a church, if you had, if you had say so and how the church was decorated and how you did different things in the church, if you, if you were going to put that verse on any object, right? You're like Hebrews 412. What would you frame it and put it on the wall? Would you put it above the pulpit? Would you put it on the pulpit? Where, where would you put Hebrews 412 if you were in charge of decorating the church? Placing things in the church. Where, where would you where would you put Hebrews four twelve? Where would you where, where would you put Hebrews four twelve? Some of you probably have some good ideas. You may say, "Oh, we'd make a banner here. We could put it here. We could put it above the door of all the Sunday school classroom." Like you, the, like you. Some of you would probably have some really really cool ideas, and you probably would make it look extremely nice. Now, would any of you consider this? Well, when we get ready to walk out the door. And when we get ready to walk in the door, I mean, when you're walking in the door, I mean, you may have stuff on your on your shoe and you, you know, you want to wipe that out. Uh, You know, you want to wipe that off before you track it all the way through the church. Right. So you put like these floor mats down. Right. These doormats down where you can, you know, wipe anything off your feet. Right. I mean, we're all familiar with those little doormats that go right in front of the door. Well, do you think you should put on a doormat Hebrews 4.12? Does, does that feel weird to you? Does that feel weird to you that you would put Hebrews four twelve on a, a real, on literally a doormat? You can call it a welcoming mat, an exiting mat. <laughs> However, wherever side of the door do you think that when someone walks through the front door of a church and they're going to get get ready to, you know, wipe off their feet, uh, wipe off their shoes, you know, the bottom of their shoes, would they look down and like, oh, here's a mat and it's got Hebrews four twelve on it? I mean, is it just me or does that just seem highly inappropriate? Let's put God's word on a floor mat. Let's put God's word on a doormat. Like, I I don't know. And and what happened is right before we were going live, I was watching... um, I always look at the live broadcast going on the, on, on the sermons 2.0 app. I just always, and I typically click on video just to see their setup and, and why they're using, sometimes some people are using video. I'm like, that makes sense. Other times I'm like, I don't know why you're going through the trouble of doing video. Audio would have worked just fine, but this one. This one had slides, these different slides, and they were showing the building. They were showing the construction of the building. And it was really cool, all of their slides. They, it kept saying, well, you know, uh, the services will begin shortly. So they went live way early and then they were showing slides. Uh, so the services were going to begin and they were showing these slides when you tuned in. Probably a good idea, something I probably should do, but I, I don't, I don't do that, obviously. I just, I go live early and just talk and then we officially go live. So. That's that's the way I do things. But I was looking at the slides. They were interesting. And then all of a sudden, there's a slide of this, like, floor mat, this doormat right in front of the door. And it's got Hebrews 4.12 on it. And I'm like, who thought that was a good idea? Like, I'm just curious. I'm just curious. Now, I cannot judge motives, obviously. I can't judge anyone's motives. So that's the last thing we can do is judge motives. So I'm not going to question anyone's motives. So, and I, and I know that the motives probably was, probably the motives were even good. You know, let's put scripture anywhere and everywhere we can inside of this building. And let's, let's see, you know, maybe they were thinking as soon as you walk into the church, the first thing you see, even when you look down to, you know, wipe off your feet, you see scripture. Maybe someone thought of it that way. It just seems like that's the place we would put scripture now I've questioned this a lot, when because very early on, I think I think my first or second, maybe it was my third trip to a Bible bookstore. First time I had ever gone into a Bible bookstore, and I went into a, a Christian bookstore and I looked around and I was like there's a lot of Jesus junk in here. Y'all just throw scripture on everything. Throw scripture on a coffee cup, throw scripture on a pen, throw scripture on a t-shirt, throw scripture on a, just place scripture on everything. And there was a part of me that, that there was one part of me like, oh, this is kind of cool. And then then there was kind of a part of me like, wait a minute, this seems like it cheapens it. Like it's kind of, and then I just started referring to it as Jesus junk. Like there was like this immediate conflict within myself within like the first 15 minutes. Like, oh, okay, so before I became a Christian, I was going to different stores, and they had all of their stuff. Now, this is like my alternative world that I now live in, and I'm supposed to put scripture on everything, but then there was a part of me like, I don't know, there was like conflict with myself, and I went back and forth in my early Christian life trying to figure out, and I basically was like, man, y'all sell a lot of Jesus junk, and just kind of basically Kind of said, I, I I'm not down with this. I'm not, I'm not down with this. Y'all put scripture on anything to sell it. And it just, it just seemed weird. So I don't know. If if your church has a doormat, floor mat, I don't know what exact I'm gonna call it a doormat because it's right in front of the door. Welcoming mat, exiting mat, whatever you want to call it. If if you go to your church tonight and they have one and there's scripture on it, how do you feel about that? I mean, what would you do? Would you walk around it? Would you just, I mean, you know, it's all muddy outside. It's, it's been raining here in West Texas. It's all muddy. And you just step into the church and like, oh, there we go. Let me wipe the mud off on, on, because that's what the mat is for, right? But you're just wiping it all over Hebrews 4.12. It seems like almost sacrilegious. It almost seems like, I, there's no way. I, I just, like, it's right there for everyone just to walk on, trample it underfoot. I, literally trampling it underfoot. Not, not figuratively, literally. I don't know. the 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 um the the image there just doesn't work. The optics there is way off. Yeah, I, I, I think I would like someone else. Uh, they think I would walk. I think I would walk around it. I don't know. I'm just confused, and I'm I'm conflicted. I'm couldn't, it wasn't what I was expecting to see. It wasn't what I was, Hey, look at our church. And Oh, look, look at our floor, our doormat. Look at it. It, It's got scripture even on the doormat. And then I was thinking if I walked into that door or if I walked out and I saw that, would I just step right on it? Like, would I even catch it in the moment? See, this sometimes, this sometimes with churches, sometimes you need that outsider to, because like sometimes when you're in it, you don't see it, right? Your church probably does lots of things that maybe you just kind of take for granted, but someone from the outside may go, what in the world are you guys doing? Do you not perceive, do you not see, do you not see the optics of that? Sometimes you can't see it because you're inside of it. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's just... I don't know. I'm conflicted. I'm conflicted. But that's not what we're supposed to be talking about. We're supposed to be talking about a devotional that I guess is raising some questions, all right? Let me let me just give you an example. Um the email I got was did this devotional just confuse people about salvation? Now this devotional is written by Charles Stanley. So the so I've got one that just says, "Hey, is this is this devotional confusing?" One, "Does this uh, devotional confuse people about salvation, and one that says, did Charles Stanley just confuse everyone about salvation? So I've received a lot of different ones about this. So I, I started looking and looking and looking and looking and looking because I've got the, pr- it was easy to find the printed copy. It was easy. But in Touch ministry slash Charles Stanley, they've got their daily radio program, And then they have a podcast for just the devotional. But it's weird. Something happened with their podcast feed. I don't know what happened. Some of the podcast feeds stopped really publishing any new episodes back in 2022. But there's a couple of podcast feeds that are, so they need to update their podcast feeds. I don't know. There's some that still are are adding some every single day. I was subscribed to it, but it stopped updating in like 2022. And so I got rid of it. So, um, I need to find it again and, 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 and subscribe because I like all of the little daily devotional ones because they're only five or 10 minutes. So I can knock out a bunch of stuff very easy with those. So, um, but I, I haven't listened to it yet. Here's what I haven't listened to it and I haven't read it. Um, I just tried to find out what the date was for it. And once I found out the date, I'm like, okay, cause so like, um, someone sent me a link and I click on the link. And it was published February the 16th, 2023. So that's the printed copy. So I went and tried to find the audio version that was published on the same day. I have it. They have the same title. So what we're going to do is we're just going to do a real-time investigation and see what the issue is. I'd, I didn't want to come into this going, ooh, this is horrible. I can rip this apart. I, didn't, I don't like doing that. I'm like, okay, people have got questions. I've got a microphone. Let's let's investigate in real time and see what we can find. Does that sound like a good idea? So let's do this. The devotional is only four minutes and four minutes and one second long. Uh, this is from In Touch Radio, Dr. Charles Stanley. They have their own app, the In Touch Ministries app. Um, we've we've worked on Dr. Charles Stanley <laughs> content before. Remember that long series that we did uh where we we dealt with one of his books. So we we have I mean there's sometimes some good stuff, sometimes some really questionable stuff. We definitely would not be on the same page theologically. He's very much I I I and I think this is far I think this is more than fair. Clearly a semi-pelagian. That's that's putting it politely. At times it feels like almost full-blown pelagian. Um Definitely would I think it would be very fair to say definitely not reformed definitely in the Armenian camp his hermeneutic is questionable and definitely much more in line with topical preaching than exegetical preaching and uh, yeah I think I think that would be fair to to say all right but he's obviously had a, a somewhat of a, an influence in the evangelical world he's he's definitely. Baptist and a lot of his doctrines in certain ways. I, I I'm I'm very familiar. I graduated from the uh, Charles Stanley Institute for Biblical Studies. I, I have a diploma from that, so I graduated from his quote unquote school. So I do have a diploma there. So I know his theology relatively well. So I think I think I can speak with some authority to it. But are you ready? Here we go. I, I, don't, I don't know what to expect. I, I, hope it's more, I hope it's less confusing than a doormat that has scripture on it. Maybe, maybe, I hope it's less confusing, but I don't know. So either all of these emailers just misunderstood what he's saying here, or we're about to just engage some serious theological confusion. But we will see. And we will see right now.
2: Here we go. Here's today's in touch Devotion.
0: Today's scripture reading begins in verse 1 of 2 Peter, chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. For His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Through these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature HAVING ESCAPED THE CORRUPTION THAT IS IN THE WORLD ON ACCOUNT OF LUST. NOW, FOR THIS VERY REASON, ALSO, APPLYING ALL DILIGENCE IN YOUR FAITH, SUPPLY MORAL EXCELLENCE, AND IN YOUR MORAL EXCELLENCE, KNOWLEDGE, AND IN YOUR KNOWLEDGE, SELF-CONTROL, AND IN YOUR SELF-CONTROL, PERSEVERANCE, AND IN YOUR PERSEVERANCE, GODLINESS, AND IN YOUR GODLINESS, BROTHERLY KINDNESS and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours, and are increasing, they do not make you useless nor unproductive in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the one who lacks these qualities is blind, or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choice of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you.
1: Okay, now, that was two minutes and ten seconds of just reading the scripture. There's only one minute and fifty-two seconds left for any devotional thought. So now we meet, so let's just be honest here. This is one of the problems with devotionals, right? You just read 11 verses and now you're going to spend less than 2 minutes giving me some kind of devotional thought on those 11 verses. Clearly context clearly working through this is not going to happen. So I don't know if this is because the the devotional is confusing or because the devotional is trying to deal with this deep deep theology here in such a short amount of time, right? That a lot, the, it's funny. So many times the people in the pew, they may prefer a short sermon, but to me, short sermons are basically shorthand for, I want to be theologically confused. Because in many cases, you cannot deal with a text in a short amount of time and lead people to any kind of theological clarity, The shorter, the more theological uncertainty there's going to have to be. You're going to have to declare things in a dogmatic way without actually working through the text. So I I, I don't know what's getting ready to happen, but here we go.
2: Some people think of salvation as a single point in time. And it's true that the moment trust is placed in Jesus, a person permanently becomes a member of God's family. It's also true that limiting the definition to that single faith decision gives an incomplete picture.
1: Okay, so there, the, uh, Charles Stanley is very famous for teaching uh, the eternal security of the believer. So we're very, very familiar with that, and we would agree with the eternal security of the believer. But now it's going to get into this idea, how do we understand salvation? Do we understand salvation as a single point in time? or do we understand that to 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 really comprehend salvation correctly that we have to see it in different ways or different parts and so he's about to articulate i think maybe probably three parts to salvation i'm assuming he's going to go with three parts i'm assuming he, he's probably going to go with the standard three parts and you probably can already guess what they are here we go
2: salvation includes three parts one justification The moment our sins are eternally forgiven and Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us. All
1: right. That sounds good. Justification. The moment our sins are forgiven and Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us. We got it. We got to applaud that. All right. I am justified based off imputed righteousness. Not infused righteousness, imputed righteousness. I am declared just before God. It's a mo- it's a it's an it's a happens in the moment of time. It's it's it happens in an instance. It's a legal declaration. I'm legally declared. We can call this forensic justification. Well, a legal declaration where I'm declared to be perfectly just, righteous, and holy because Christ's righteousness is imputed to my account. Now what is so confusing in the evangelical world and much of the Christian world as we as well much of the Protestant non-Catholic Christian world is we really emphasize we are justified by an imputed righteousness, an imputed righteousness, an imputed righteousness, and everyone says, amen, amen. And then literally over and over and over, five seconds later, we'll say something that contradicts that. We'll say, hey, you're, you're once and for all saved and declared righteous because of Christ's imputed righteousness. You are saved based off that righteousness, not anything you can do. And then five seconds later, it will be like, but if you don't do this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this, well, you are not saved. Well, wait a minute. I thought I was saved by an imputed righteousness. How can you be looking to practical righteousness to determine if I've got the imputed righteousness? And if all my sins are paid for, how can you look to any sin to say that I'm not saved since those sins have been paid for if I'm in Christ Jesus? It's really this weird contradictory world. But this part, we we are very much in agreement with. I'm going to back it up. And I'm going to back it up because I just like hearing anybody say that we're justified by an imputed righteousness. That makes me very, very happy. Okay, I'm going to keep backing up, keep backing up. I'm going to go. I'm just going to back it up this way. All right, here we go. Here we go. I'm going to back it up. I'm going to back it up far because I want us to hear that he's saying we are declared, we are justified by an imputed righteousness because that needs to be like repeated a million times over.
2: It's also true that limiting the definition to that single faith decision gives an incomplete picture. Salvation includes three parts. One, justification, the moment our sins are eternally forgiven and Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us. Two, sanctification, not only are we declared righteous, we enter the process of becoming increasingly righteous in this life.
1: Okay, now we get to the whole issue with sanctification. Now, I think with sanctification, though, I think to me, I think it's unfair to limit it to what he... If you don't want to limit salvation to just one single moment, I think it's very unfair to limit sanctification to just a process where we become more and more righteous in this life. Let's think about this. There is is an is an eternity past aspect to sanctification because God in eternity past, foreknew and elected and chose certain people for salvation. By that, we were eternally in the past sanctified. Sanctified means set apart for God. We were set apart for God in eternity past by his foreknowledge, by his election, by his predestination, right? That we are eternally in the past, we can call it eternally past sanctification, set apart all right? Then we can talk about in, then, then we are saved. So that's our election. That's our predestination. Then we are saved. At the moment of salvation, there is our, we'll call it our present sanctification. I break these down different every single time because I, I, I always try to emphasize different aspects to it. But there's the eternity past sanctification, we're sanctified in Christ. Then we are set apart in salvation. That is our present day salvation. Our uh, in or how can we call it? You know, we'll just call it our salvation sanctification. We'll we'll do that. We'll just do that. At the moment of salvation, at the moment of justification, we are set apart for God. He saves us. His righteousness is imputed to me. I am Him. I am His. He is mine. We are sanctified. We are set apart. So we were set apart in the past. We are set apart perfectly in Christ and our salvation. At the moment of our salvation, we are set apart. I am now in him. I'm set apart from the world. And I, we, we can call this our positional sanctification. Hey, how do we like that? We have our, our eternal sanctification past sanctification and we have our positional sanctification that occurs at the moment of justification we are the moment we are justified we are set apart we are in Christ i am seated with Christ at the right hand of the father i am eternally separated i am eternally in him right so there's my my uh you know salvation my my justification uh, sanctification if you want to say that right so there's the past there's my salvation, justification, sanctification, my positional sanctification. Then we'll call this the process of sanctification that's ongoing during, or we'll call, our, we'll call it lifetime sanctification, or we could call it practical sanctification. Now, this is my never-ending attempt to live out practically what is true positionally and what is true eternally past, eternally pa- past, I'm sanctified. I'm set apart by God for his eternal purpose, which will be to save me. In Christ, in salvation, in justification, I am positionally set apart. I am in Christ. I am a new creature. This is my true of my position. The old is gone. I am completely set apart for him. I'm hidden in him. I'm seated at the right hand of, of the father in Christ Jesus. Right? Then my practical sanctification is happens throughout this life where I am constantly struggling and attempting to live out and practice of what is true positionally. So I am daily trying to be more and more set apart to God in everyday life. This is my practical sanctification. It's never perfect. It's never complete. And it's always mixed with error, failure, and sin. Then we have the eternal future sanctification, which is called glorification, where I then will be set apart forever with God in eternity. Right? So there's a past aspect, eternity past. There is a positional sanctification that occurs at the moment of salvation, at the moment of justification. I'm set apart perf- perfectly, positionally in Christ Jesus. Then there's the practical lifetime sanctification, which is never perfect. It's a mess. It's, it's a mixture of failure and, and all kinds of things. And then there's the eternal future, which is in my glorification. All right? They kind of limit sanctification to just one thing. All right, now back this up a little bit. Back this up a little bit. All right, here we go.
2: 1. Justification. The moment our sins are eternally forgiven and Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us. 2. Sanctification. Not only are we declared righteous, we enter the process of becoming increasingly righteous in this life. And 3. Glorification. God grants us the position of being glorified, and He completes the process when we experience perfect sinlessness at the resurrection. It's a package deal. Those who are justified are being sanctified and will be thoroughly glorified. How can we claim we're saved if sanctification isn't happening in our lives?
1: Oh, boy. How can we claim to be saved if sanctification isn't happening in our lives? So... What did we just do here? How do you prove your justification? By your sanctification. But if I'm justified by an imputed righteousness, my sanctification cannot be used to prove that because it's an imputed righteousness. If I'm, say, by an infused righteousness, then I could look to my sanctification to prove my salvation. But I, but that's Roman Catholicism. We are not saved by an infused. We are saved by an imputed. Imputed, Christ declares me to be perfectly righteous. I, I don't have to look to my actions to prove that. That happens by faith alone. But everybody wants to take this imputed righteousness and test it by sanctification. And he says, if you're not being sanctified, you're not saved. Well, then now, now look what you have to do. You have to look to a sanctification that is never perfect, that is never complete, that is mixed with failure, error, up, down, wrong, sideways, constantly a mess to somehow prove that you're saved. How can my imperfect sanctification ever, ever prove anything? Because at best it's imperfect. At worst, it's, it's a complete mess. I'm going to back this up again. I want you to listen to this carefully. Here we go.
2: And three, glorification. God grants us the position of being glorified, and He completes the process when we experience perfect sinlessness at the resurrection. It's a package deal. Those who are justified are being sanctified and will be thoroughly glorified. How can we claim we're saved if sanctification isn't happening in our lives? Now the degree of godliness and fruitfulness varies with each individual, but as those of us who are believers cooperate with Him, God has promised to complete the good work He began in our life.
1: And now look at this back and to, back and forth. So so basically, look if if sanctification isn't happening, we we can't claim to be saved. But wait, but but slow down. The degree of godliness varies with each individual. So then, what's the measuring stick? Well, as long as there's something. As long as there's something, something what? So, so what this looks like, as long as I clean up a little bit of the outside of the cup, right? That's all I got to do is clean up a little bit of the outside of the cup. People like, well, see there's sanctification. I just cleaned up the outside of the cup. What does that prove? That doesn't prove anything, The Pharisees cleaned up the outside of the cup. The Sadducees cleaned up the outside of the cup. Mormons clean up the outside of the cup. Jehovah's Witnesses clean up the outside of the cup. Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Muslims, people all over the world, people in AA, people in Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous, everyone can clean up the outside of the cup. My, My salvation is based off an imputed righteousness. And he's saying, hey, no, no, no. Now, you can't be claimed to be saved if there's no sanctification. Well, then, so my salvation then is not based off an imputed righteousness. My salvation is based off the amount of of righteousness that shows up in my everyday life. That's what you're claiming. You can't claim you're saved by an imputed righteousness and then turn around. You can't claim salvation if there isn't sanctification, because now my salvation is really determined by the amount of righteousness seen in my everyday life. And this, once again, reduces sanctification to just this one thing and forgets about the eternity past, the positional sanctification No, 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 no. Now this just reduces sanctification to, come on, show me, show me, show me, show me. You didn't show enough. You can't claim to be saved.
2: As we read in Philippians 1, verse 6, Jesus is our master because he purchased us from sin with his blood. And we see in Romans 10, verse 9, that when we confess and believe that God raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, we are saved. The question is whether we're submitting to his process of sanctification. Has your life changed since you first professed Christ? Are you diligently cooperating with the Holy Spirit so that your life is a reflection of Jesus' life?
1: Okay, that's the devotional that's leading to lots of questions today. Uh. Okay. Yes. Someone just said, I think what bothers me the most is that our Buddhist neighbors probably look like saints compared to me. Anyone can be sanctified from our perspective. Exactly. Sanctification is such a, like, when you look at it as sanctification is based off what you do and don't do, it's so, like, there's no way to determine it. Like, how do you, you how do you measure it? You're just looking for some Specific change in someone's life, and anyone can make outward changes to their life. Now, one article, one email contained a link to an article in regards to this devotional. And this is how this article reads. There is something subtly sideways in this devotional. So someone sent me a link to an article about this devotional, and it's like something, something's not right here. Right, The first and foremost problem is that Dr. Stanley is using a sanctification passage to teach about salvation from eternal condemnation. Now, that's an interesting concept. Yeah. Okay, now we're back. We're back. Okay. I apologize for that. We had a temporary uh, internet issue, but I think everything is back. I am so grateful everything is back because I was sitting here contemplating if this crashes completely, I have spent 34 minutes and everything is about to go to waste. So we will back up just a little bit, put this all together, and then if need be, I'll try to edit this audio so that I can see where everything went horribly wrong. Okay, so I hope everyone's ready. Here we go. Let me explain. We have been listening. To a devotional by Dr. Charles Stanley, Dr. Charles Stanley has put forth this concept, this idea that basically, hey, how do you know you're saved? You looked at your, you look at sanctification. You look at sanctification, and sanctification is the process of becoming more and more righteous in your life. So, how do you know you're saved? Your salvation is based off the amount of righteousness that shows up in one's life. Of course, it doesn't give us any specific example uh, standard by which we judge this. Like, if if the basis of my salvation is the amount of righteousness that shows up in my life, then it's imperative upon the person who makes that claim to clearly articulate how much righteousness must show up. But not only that, it's a complete denial of being saved by an imputed righteousness. It's basically claiming we are saved by an infused righteousness. So there's a lot of issues with this, all right? And an article that someone sent me a link to states it this way that there's something clearly sideways in this article and that the first problem they claim is that Dr. Stanley is using a sanctification passage to teach about salvation from eternal condemnation. Look if you want to if you're you've got to make sure that when you're looking at a passage, is this passage talking about justification or is it talking about sanctification? Is this passage talking about sanctification or justification? He is saying that Dr. Stanley is using a passage about Sanctification to make claims in regards to justification and salvation. I think that there is probably something to that. The Apostle, Paul, uh, the Apostle Peter clearly says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5, once Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, that one must add to your faith seven things, that all are works. Now please note 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 5 through 7, Peter says that we must add things to our faith. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Now, if we're saved by faith, and if we're saved by faith alone, adding to that faith would not be done in order to save you. It wouldn't be order in, to, in order to prove you're saved. It would just be a challenge that now that you're saved, you should add to your faith these things. What are these things? Now, please note, they're all works. I'm going to read from this article. They translate it this way. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. If we do that then God will add to us an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. Look at verse 11. All right. So uh, I'm going to go back to verse 10, 2 Peter 1.10. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fail. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, do we read this, that if we don't add these seven things, then we're not saved? Now, if we're going to read these seven things are required in order to prove that we're saved, then you need all seven. And to what level do you need all seven? Now, let's see how this article is going to handle this. The apostle Peter was not talking about merely getting into the kingdom. He was talking about gaining a rich entrance into it. So they are claiming that Peter here is not saying, hey, you've got to have these seven things in order to be saved, but that you add these seven things because it will make your entrance into kingdom more rich. That there will be, you could call it reward. There would be benefit. All right, we, 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 could, we could possibly discuss that. They go on to say this. A contemporary at DTS, and I'm assuming DTS stands for uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, I'm assuming DTS has to be referring to a Dallas Theological Seminary. They They don't articulate what it is, but this is what they say. A contemporary went from lordship's salvation position to a free grace position when he preached on this passage. He noted that faith alone would not give this rich entrance. He noted that the apostle Peter would not be contradicting the Lord Jesus and the apostle Paul. So my friend's theology changed due to this very passage. Dr. Stanley's devotional says that faith alone is not enough to save us from hell. We must add to our faith virtue, perseverance, godliness, kindness, and love. Doesn't that sound like a salvation uh, by faith plus works? It does, because that is what it is, though I'm sure that was not Dr. Stanley's intention. The only problem is that Dr. Stanley has made several sideways statements supporting his suppositions about salvation. Uh, uh, And... uh, uh, he's made several sideways statements supporting his suppositions about salvation. Sideways statement number one. Some people think of salvation as existing in a single point in time. That's the first sentence. What a start. If by salvation he means everlasting life, which he does, then it does exist at a single point in time. Now, this is very true. Do we believe salvation is something that happens at a single moment in time or do we believe salvation is a process? Now, if we if we d- understand salvation to mean being saved from eternal condemnation and being saved from hell, then it is a single moment in time. If we believe salvation is a term that encompasses everything, justification, sanctification, and glorification, then salvation isn't a moment in time. It's a process. Now, this goes very much to Roman Catholicism, looking at all of this as a process. Now, Charles Stanley in the devotional is clearly saying it's not a single moment in time. He sees salvation as encompassing all of these things, right? Let's see where else they go here. They say sideways statement number two, but limiting the definition of salvation to that single faith decision gives an incomplete picture. Faith is not a decision, and it is certainly not a series of decisions as Charles Stanley suggests, all right, so he says that we, that we can't, Charles Stanley in the devotional says we can't limit salvation to a single faith decision. Okay, so then what is salvation then? Is salvation being saved from hell or is salvation this complete everything? And, and, and if you go with the more completed picture, then guess what? Nobody is saved unless they experience all of these things. So faith alone is not sufficient. You need faith, you need sanctification, and then you need glorification. In other words, and now you could argue, well, faith will guarantee the sanctification and the glorification. You could make that kind of claim, but then you're right back to you're not saved by faith alone. You're saved by faith alone, and plus these other things. You end up going in some serious circles here. He goes on to say, sideways statement number three, salvation is a package deal. Those who are justified are being sanctified and will be glorified. We can't claim to be saved if sanctification isn't happening in our lives. God has promised to complete the good works he began in our life. Statements like that make assurance of salvation impossible. It does. People who believe they will go through life wondering if sanctification is happening, how can they know they've added enough godliness, kindness, and love to prove they're genuinely saved? And if they think they're doing well now, what if they fall away in the future? Absolutely true. If you, if you believe that, hey, if there isn't sanctification, there was never justification, and your faith will produce—in other words, then, then, then your justification is not by an imputed righteousness, it's by an infused righteousness. It has to produce sanctification, and if there isn't sanctification, you're not saved, you're never going to know you're saved. You'll never know. You'll never have assurance, because how much sanctification would be required to prove your justification? How much sanctification would be required to prove that your faith was supposedly genuine? And again, you're looking to practical righteousness to prove the the being given an imputed righteousness. There would be no way to ever know for sure you're saved. There would be literally no way to know. They go on with sideways uh, statement number four. All right. Sideway statement number four, Romans 10.9 says that we must confess him as Lord in order to be saved. The question is whether you're submitting to his process of sanctification. Has your life changed since you first professed Christ? Are you diligently cooperating with the Holy Spirit so that your life reflects Jesus? If your, assur- if your assurance of salvation were not annihilated before those four sentences, the last words in this devotional, it would be now. How do you measure these changes in your life? And why talk about when you first profess Christ? Isn't the issue when you first believed in him? Why does it mean to diligently cooperate with the Holy Spirit? So let me read this again. All right. So this is the sideways statement number four in the devotional. Romans 10, 9 says we must confess him as Lord in order to be saved. The question is whether you're submitting to his process of sanctification. Has your life changed since you first professed Christ? Are you diligently cooperating with the Holy Spirit so that your life reflects Jesus' image? Then they, then the article goes on to say, if your assurance of salvation were not annihilated before those four sentences, the last words in this devotional, it would be now. How do you measure the changes in your life? And why talk about when you first profess Christ? Uh, it, that isn't the issue when you first believed. What does it mean to diligently, diligently cooperate with the Holy Spirit? Now, of course, the issue would be, once again, if you, if you make these claims, in fact, I'm going to go back to the actual devotional. See, I'm going to go back to the actual devotional. It says this, um, we must confess him as Lord in order to be saved. The question is whether Jesus is our master because he purchased us from sin with his blood. And Romans 10, 9 says we must confess him as Lord in order to be saved. The question is whether you're submitting to his process of sanctification. In other words, that's the question. If you're not submitting to the process of sanctification, you're not saved.'t doesn't matter doesn't matter if you've believed. doesn't matter if you put your faith in Christ. You've got to be submitting to sanctification. And how do you know? Because, well, are you diligently co- has your life been changed since you first made a profession of, of, in, in Christ? Have you have your Has your life been changed since you first made a profession? Are you diligently cooperating with the Holy Spirit so that your life reflects the image of Christ? In other words, if you're not doing these things, you're not saved. Well, then you can't say that I'm saved by an imputed righteousness. See, he decla- he defined justification as being declared ra- being saved by an imputed righteousness. And then before this devotional is over, it's like, hey, how do you know you're saved? Well, are you submitting to the process of sanctification? Are you being changed? Is there change? What's happening in your life? What's happening? Well, wait a minute. Imputed righteousness doesn't produce these changes. Imputed righteousness declares me perfect and right in Christ. Now, I do believe we are called to add these things to our faith. Not in order to prove that I'm saved because what would ever prove that I'm saved? And how could I ever know for sure that I have enough of them? Now, I, I guess what we do is we just look for a couple of changes and go, see, that proves I'm saved. And then I guess because you have a couple of changes, you're good. What about all the areas where where you're not supposedly changed? This devotional is an absolute mess. Uh, This is how the article someone sent me reads. This is how the article ends. Uh, The article ends. I looked up his age. Dr. Stanley is 90 years of age. He stepped down as senior pastor of First Baptist in September 2020. But as far as I can tell, he is still in full time with In Touch Ministries. I admire that. I hope I'm still active in ministry if I live to be 90. This, however, is not one of his better devotionals. Uh, And yeah. There we go. It definitely is not. Yeah. Well, I see. That's a good point. Someone says it's scary because it could lead to a false assurance. I'm, di- I'm, I'm changed. Like, I mean, like, I mean, I guess how how does the game work? I don't really know how the game works, right? S- so, I look for I look for any change in my life. I look for any and say, "Well, see, I'm saved." But the problem is, how much like. Ah, that That's what's so confusing to me. Like, I, I anyone could probably find some change. Why well, I didn't used to go to church, now I go to church. See, I'm saved. But the point is, is you, you, your assurance is not being found in Christ. Your assurance is being found what you've done in your life. And then if you say, no, 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 it's not what I've done. It's what God's done in my life. Well, if God is doing the change in everyone's life, then why wouldn't everyone be, well, first, why wouldn't everyone be perfect? And... Well, you say, well, God doesn't want everyone to be perfect. Okay, well, then any lack of change in my life would not be my fault. It would be God's fault. It's weird. Any change in my life, God gets the credit. Any lack of change in my life proves that I'm not saved. (laughs) Wait a minute. If God's the one making the change, it would be his fault, right? It's so, it's such a weird world to try to figure out. It's such a weird world to try to figure out. I'm going to look at something really quick. Wow, what a, what a confusing, what a con, a conf, what a confusing devotional. Um, I, I just, I just don't know how this world works. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to put wrap my mind around it. Oh, yeah. Now, the, obviously the 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 theme of this episode has been confusion, right? I'm confused about a doormat that has scripture on it. That's what we started with. Then I'm confused by this devotional. Then I was confused by the fact that we had an internet outage in the middle of it. So I hopefully it's not all messed up. So I got all discombobulated in my thinking, but I didn't, I, I didn't make any mistakes. It's confusing the way the devotional is written at the end, So the person reading the article trying to explain the devotional was a little confusing because the devotional at the end is a little bit confusing. In fact, the whole devotional is confusing because it's like, hey, guys, you're justified. You're justified before a holy God because of an imputed righteousness where Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. Amen. But wait, 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 guys, don't get too excited. Wait, 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 wait. You're not really justified. Unless there's sanctification, unless there's change in your life, unless you're submitting to God for sanctification, unless things are changing, you're not saved. Well, wait a minute, I thought I was saved by an imputed righteousness. No, 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 no. You're really saved based off what is changed in your life. Well, that's not imputed. That's infused. The evangelical world. Seems incapable of understanding the confusion here. Now I'm going to get someone on YouTube going, no, the problem is you just don't get it. It's really not that complicated. It's really simple. See, you're you're saved, but you're not really saved unless you do this and this and this, but you don't have to do it perfectly, but you can. And it's just, and whenever people try to explain it, it's always weird that like they, they get mad at you saying that you don't understand it. But the more they talk, the more you're like, how convoluted can you make this? So let me see if I can simplify this. Are we saved based on the righteousness that Christ imputes to us by faith alone? And has Christ paid for all of my sins? And, and when I put my faith in Christ, all my sins are paid for. Now, if you say affirmative, Christ paid for all of my sins, right? They're all paid for then you cannot look to any sin in my life and say that proves that I'm not saved because they've all been paid for in Christ Jesus. So did he pay for all my sins or did he not? It's that simple. You say, well, you commit the sin. I may commit the sin, but is it paid for or not? Did I lose the payment? Either Jesus paid for my sins or he didn't. And if you say, well, when you put your faith in Christ, all of your sins have been paid for. Well, then you can't point to one sin to say that I'm not saved because they've been paid for. The second thing, am I saved by an imputed righteousness? In other words, by faith, Christ's righteousness is declared is, is given to me. It's declared to be mine. It's imputed to my account. I stand before God perfectly righteous. If you say, yes, you're saved by an imputed righteousness, then how can you look to the presence or lack thereof of practical righteousness in someone's life to determine they're saved? Because imputed righteousness doesn't produce practical. It's just imputed. It's just, I'm, I'm declared to be that, which I'm not. Now if you're going to come around and say no, 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 no. Without sanctification, you're not saved. Well, then wait a minute, 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 wait a minute. Now, which sanctification are you referring to, my positional sanctification or my practical sanctification? If you're going to judge my salvation based off a practical sanctification, then you're saying I'm not saved based off an imputed righteousness. Now you're saying I'm, I'm saved based off the practical righteousness that shows up in my life, And then you're telling me my sins haven't really been paid for because if my sins have been paid for any lack of practical righteousness in my life wouldn't matter because that would be sin. And all the sins are paid for. (laughs) I don't understand. I think the entire evangelical world, and I know that some of these things we've talked about a hundred times, but we have to keep talking about them because these kinds of articles are still being published on the internet. These kinds of devotionals are still still being aired on the internet and I don't know how anyone I don't know how anyone could have any hope of salvation. I don't know how anyone could have any hope of salvation. So what you would have to do is just grab onto a few supposed changes and say, "See, I'm saved, I'm saved well. Because you've got three or four supposed changes in your life? What about the thousand of other areas in your life where you still have a million problems? Well, but I go to church now, and I didn't used to go to church, and I used to say a hundred bad words. Now I only say three or four. Okay, wow, congratulations. You've proven you're saved. And then you've got to figure out how that all works. If God is the one producing the sanctification then any lack of sanctification in my life, why do I get the blame? Wouldn't it be his fault, not my fault? All right, I'm going to stop there because we have the internet doing some weird things again. All right, I'm going to go back and see how, how much uh, got messed up and uh, we'll try to fix it all. Yeah. Ah, okay. 55 minutes, and I'm very frustrated. That that last part of that article got really convoluted. It really did. But in some ways, it fits with the overall theme. The devotional caused the, all the confusion, but the internet outage definitely did not help. All right, email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. I'll be more than happy to work through this a little bit more and to clarify this. Um, but if you hear people talking about this devotional, well, you, we've at least scratched the surface. There's much more we need to take apart, and we will work on it uh, soon. We will, because there's a phrase there in, in in that Second Peter passage that we need to work on, but we'll do that uh, soon. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. All right, thanks. Everyone have a great evening. God bless.